Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's 9 a.m. in California on the 24th of March. The U.S. Congress is supposedly close to a deal, a a $2 trillion deal on, on the coronavirus package. Stock market is up, but who knows what's going to happen by the time you listen to this. Uh, it's noon on the East Coast, and uh, in Washington, D.C., I'm talking to Edward Luce, the Financial Times' U.S. national editor and columnist, uh, and the author of an excellent uh, book uh, about the crisis of uh, democracy, the retreat of Western liberalism. Uh, Ed your colleague Rana Faruha has invented the term life in BC and AC. I know you've also given quite a lot of thought to the way in which this crisis is, is changing the very structure of life in the United States. What do BC and AC mean? Well, that's before coronavirus and after uh, coronavirus. Um, and I think um, I think Rana, my, my colleague Rana, is correct in in saying this is a seminal event. I would go so far as to say it's going to have a a deeper impact on the way we live, the way we think, and the way we do politics um, than nine eleven and even than two thousand and eight. But certainly, it's up there in the top three most significant events of this century. And I think we will all remember. Um, this phase in our life, our children will all remember this phase in our lives um, uh, with actually f- far deeper an impression than than we did than we did um, where we were on nine eleven or where we were in late two thousand and eight. Is- well, everyone, I wasn't around when Kennedy was shot, but everyone remembers that moment. I certainly remember the moment when the second plane crashed into the towers. Is there a particular moment that we're all going to remember? Well, I suspect if you're Indian, it's the moment that Narendra Modi uh, in the last 24 hours announced, you know, an entire nation on lockdown, 1.3 billion people on home lockdown, the largest by far by a multiple uh, human quarantine in history. Um, I think um, for people on the East Coast of the United States, it's likely to be Monday of a week ago. I think that was the 15th or the 16th of March when the first full week of no school and of effective lockdown began in many of the East Coast cities. Similarly, in San Francisco, you're going to remember the day that um, that Mayor London announced that, and you're probably going to remember the day Gavin Newsom did statewide for California. Uh, we remember it because life just dramatically changed um, overnight. It, it wasn't that gradual. It was a pretty sudden shift. Um, and we're now all, you know, sort of <laughs> inventing new terms and new vocabulary and using scientific terms every day that we'd never used before in our life, such as herd immunity um, and community um, spread and, and, and stuff like that. It's changing our vocabulary. Ed, you, you've written about Western liberalism, 
particularly its crisis. How do you expect the world of AC to change, to transform the nature of Western democracies? Easy question. I can tell you how I hope it would change, um, but I'm very cautious about making predictions. And the reason why is because three weeks ago, um, President Trump was saying $8.5 billion was too much, um, but he'll take it anyway. Uh, that's what the Democrats in Congress wanted to give to the CDC and the NIH, etc. Um, within 10 days of that, he was pushing for a trillion plus. Uh, at that time, he said there were 15 or fewer um, Americans um, with home, home-based infections, community spread infections of coronavirus. Now there are about to be 50,000. So what can change in the space of two, three weeks? Uh, has been breathtaking. And, you know, extrapolating from that to say what's going to happen in November and how this will change politics is, I think, um, almost futile um, at this point. I was as stunned as anybody else, um, or at least as many other people were, to see that Trump's coronavirus handling approval rating is now at about 55%. So what I am perceiving in my social isolation and what you may be, Andrew, in yours is not necessarily what the majority of Americans are perceiving. So I can tell you, I can tell you what I would like to see happen. Um, but I would caution this, this is, this is quite possibly wishful thinking. Right. I, I understand that. Um, and you've, of course, been quite critical of, of, of President Trump and, and the nature of his regime. Do you expect this crisis to change Trump or is it just making Trump more like Trump? And is it compounding the the populist forces which are driving him? Well, I think his first two attempts at passing a stimulus, um, you know, included this $500 billion um, uh, bailout fund, which others have dubbed slush fund um, for companies, for corporations that had um, a secrecy clause for six months, which could well mean that companies receiving money, public money, wouldn't have to disclose it, or the Treasury wouldn't have to disclose it until after the presidential election. Trump has himself complained that his own businesses have shuttered. Most of Trump's properties, golf courses, etc., have shuttered. And he's himself said that he has lost billions from being president, um, and refused to uh, rule out accepting taxpayer funds to support his business. Finally, he has said that he will be the ultimate arbiter. Um, uh, he will be the um, the umpire of whether these funds are distributed transparently, fairly, and um, uh, to deserving companies. You don't need to be a genius um, knowing Trump, knowing his proclivities, um, and knowing how he's governed in his first three and a half years to um, to deduce from this that Trump sees this as a great pay-for-play opportunity. Um, I, I think that is Trumpian. Whether whether it is populist, you know, is is a is another question, partly a semantic question. Um, but I don't think this leopard is going to change his spots. And I do think that the Democratic Party's insistence that this $500 billion is, comes with transparency and with very clear strings attached, 
at, attached that prevent the recipient companies from self-dealing, from paying themselves big bonuses and from laying off workers is entirely reasonable in any context. Um, but it's essential in this context. We have to, we have to ma- maintain trust, bearing in mind 2008 and the Wall Street bailout. We have to maintain trust in the good faith and transparency of, of uh, government rescue attempts um, at the moment. I was very struck uh, with Trump's remarks yesterday, 23rd of March, when he was pretty unambiguous, explicit about um, accepting a, a toll of dead people in exchange for um, r- stimulating the economy. Do you think that Trump is willing to be so explicit in this trade-off between uh, death, particularly the death of old people, and general American prosperity? Uh, I am. I am quite surprised by the uh, brazenness with which Trump has said, "Look, there are, there are cures that are worse than diseases, and this is a cure that's worse than the disease." And you know, we should look at relaxing restrictions as soon as next Monday. Um, the end of the month. Uh, so I am surprised by that. But bearing in mind what I said in my previous answer, um, you know, there are strong Trump imperatives to make money, and he is losing a lot of money. Um, you should also bear in mind here that most of the toughest restrictions have been taken at the city and state level, notably in New York and California, but also places like Ohio, Michigan. Massachusetts, uh, and that Trump can't undo those. What he's talking about is relaxing the federal guidelines, which is essentially advice. And the CDC's advice is uh, uh, meetings of um, groups of more than 10 people um, are, um, uh, are ill-advised. We caution against it. Trump might relax those restrictions. He might even scrap them next week in the hope that punters will come flooding back onto his golf courses and into his hotels. But uh, it it, it might prove to be um, completely ineffectual. I think people are uh, across the country, even even Fox News viewers, beginning to to get quite well educated on the um, science of social distancing. So we'll see. But I, I would never, ever underestimate Trump's motives, they are always low. What about the nature of expertise, particularly scientific expertise in the political conversation? Populism in the West, particularly Trump's populism, has been based to some extent on challenging the very idea of expertise, intellectual and scientific. Uh, Is this crisis going to change that or compound it? It's a very good question. And and this is this is why, to some extent, I'm reluctant to predict. I would like to think that experts are now back in fashion. And the popularity, for example, of Dr. Anthony Fauci, the unelected bureaucrats, and the notion of public service and of good information um, will come back into fashion. I would like to think that that will be one impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, whether it will prove so in practice remains to be seen. Um, 
clearly Donald Trump thinks he's an expert um, because he had an uncle at, um, at, I can't remember whether it was Princeton or Harvard, Dr. Donald Trump, who was uh, a very good scientist by all accounts. And Trump um, in some way feels that by osmosis or genetics, he therefore is entitled to talk about science. And what he's been doing every day now for nine days is indulging in sort of quite extraordinary quackery, um, sort of amateur prognostications about which drugs might work and miracle cures and so forth. And uh, I don't know whether he's going to be punished for that or whether he's going to be ridiculed. We're seeing we're seeing both to some degree. What the lasting impact will be on Trump as a politician and Trump Trump's reputation in history is something I would love to predict with confidence, but don't feel able to at this point. Ed, you've, you've spent more time than most, or certainly more time than most of the, the coastal liberal elites in the US, in, in the US heartland. You predicted Trump uh, to some extent, certainly more accurately than many other people. W- what is the heartland, the typical Trump supporter who's sitting in front of Fox, what are they thinking right now? Um, thank you for, for mentioning that. I do try and travel as much as I can, and, uh, and I always find it invaluable and is a great antidote to sitting around talking about politics inside the Washington Beltway. Um, I haven't, for obvious reasons, been able to do that since the um, epidemic really started taking off in the United States. And so my answer to that question would be secondhand. Uh, my, my fear is looking at some of the numbers. Um, my fear is that um, even though there is more awareness across the nation about um, the science of social distancing, etc., cetera, there, um, there is a tendency because of completely separate parallel universe media habits to filter this through partisan lenses. And you could make the case through the opinion poll numbers and the viewing habit numbers and the online um, trolling habit numbers that's been quite a lot of in the last few days, um, that this coronavirus, this pandemic, uh, is being um, dealt with in a partisan way. Um, And that it's very, very difficult to speak both to liberals and conservatives, Democrats and Republicans and independents, um, uh, in, in neutral scientific language about this. And I'll just give you one example. In the last 48 hours, as you mentioned earlier, there's been this push to relax the restrictions much sooner than scientists would advise um, uh, in order to um, get the economy um, going again. And you could predict um, very, very clearly who it is who supports that, who it is who's echoing that, and who it is who's opposing that and um, and criticizing it. Uh, there are two nations. There were before the pandemic hit. Um, there's clearly two nations now. Uh, I would like to travel quite a bit after this, and um, you know, once once we're allowed to, and once the worst is over and try and get a sense of the answers to your very, very pertinent questions. Um, At the moment, I'm not that optimistic that this is a sort of kumbaya 
transcending of partisanship um, event, not least because of the behavior of the president himself. It's interesting you talk about this supposed, or in theory, this kumbaya moment, this end of partisanship. You haven't mentioned Joe Biden yet, who will inevitably run on that. Um, but he doesn't seem to be able to articulate a coherent voice at this point, at least in the crisis. Is that fair? That is fair. He did give one very good speech um, about how America should respond to the to the crisis, and it said all the things you would you would want to hear from a president: follow the advice, listen to the experts, don't listen to the non-experts. We must fight this together. We must help those worst affected. If this is going to be a difficult time, um, it requires global cooperation. This is no time for nationalism. This is a global challenge with global solutions. It, all the kinds of things that you would like to hear from a leader, calm, um, not overtly political, um, and reassuring in the sense you, you, you felt you were hearing from somebody with experience of governing. Um, but we haven't really heard from him since. Part of the reason for that is because he's also on lockdown at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, and part of the reason is because he sort of said what he had to say. Um, it, it, it's, 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 he, can, he should rep- find different ways of saying the same thing. Um, he should try to sound presidential and reacting, I guess, to what Trump says every day in these long rambling press conferences um, threatens to reduce him to Trump's level. And I'll give you one example of that. Trump keeps calling this virus the China virus. Um, uh, everybody in, the, well, almost everybody in liberal America and in the media reacts with outrage that this is a, a diversionary tactic and scapegoating. Trump clearly wins from that. Whenever Trump is attacking political correctness, he wins. And I don't, and I think Biden's probably a little bit cautious because he knows if he gets down in the mud with Trump, Trump wins mud fights. So it's not easy. It's not easy for Biden to craft a response. Biden clearly can't compete with these daily rambling press conferences, but he does need to be more visible. And I hope that he will be, at least from his virtual, you know, hurriedly built TV studio in his um, in his home, find opportunities to inject that voice we heard two weeks ago. It's very important that he do that, that Trump is getting what they call earned media every day. He's getting the networks running this for one hour, two hours. He's getting what he got in 2016. He's not paying a cent for this exposure. Biden's got to find a way of, of getting back into people's consciousness. Is one way to get back into people's consciousness stealing some of the thunder of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and thinking about this crisis in terms of re-architecting 21st century capitalism? After all, the impact of the crisis has barely been felt yet in economic terms. We know there's going to be mass unemployment. We know that more and more ordinary people are going to go bankrupt. We know that the government is going to be forced to make profound reforms, at least in the short term, of the capitalist system. Is or could Biden gamble on taking, and, and, and you know, the, 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 the core area where 
the the, uh, the the crisis is happening is is in the healthcare one. I would like to see that. Uh, I mean, I think I and I agree with the premise of your question. This is what Obama would call a, a teachable moment. Um, all the debates about healthcare can sometimes seem quite abstract. They're not anymore. Everybody understands that, you know, if you have concierge uh, medicine, access to the highest quality um, health insurance, then you get, you know, tests when you want them. Um, and you get ICUs, you know, put into your into your home in in the Hamptons, as we've reported on in the Financial Times. They get that. It's kinetic now. And uh, they also get that we as a collective unit, as a society and as a globe, are only as safe as, as our weakest people. And if, if our weakest people have no choice but to go to work, um, even when they have a fever and are not feeling well, then we are all endangered. So this is a teachable moment. And I would like to see Biden exploit it more. I suspect the reason he hasn't yet is because Bernie Sanders hasn't dropped out yet. And I think there's a sort of delicate dance there um, for Biden, A, to persuade Sanders to drop out, and Sanders, um, in turn, to persuade Biden to endorse a lot of what he's been running on. Um, And that, of course, includes a much more robust family leave, sick leave, worker protection agenda than Biden's been running on. And it it also includes universal health care and things like a wealth tax, which poll very well, incidentally. And if you want to make a case for the wealth tax, the time when a virus, you know, that can get into the White House just as easily as it can get into a meth den in Albuquerque is the time to make it. This is a should be a time to make the case that it's a common foe. We require solidarity. Um, Here are the weaknesses in our system. This is what I'm running on. And so I would like to see that. Um, And as I say, I suspect part of the reason that Biden might be being inhibited is because of this delicate dance between him and Sanders as to when Sanders may or may not drop out and endorse him. Very briefly, um, Ed, I know you don't want to make predictions because it's really hard, but perhaps you might come up with a, a best and a worst case scenario for this, let's say, in the next six months. So the best case scenario I, is, is in a way what I've just outlined, um, which is Biden does sort of emerge from his chrysalis um, with that kind of platform and wins um, in November and that he doesn't just win. Um, but Trump is comprehensively defeated. In principle, the, the theory of Trump, not only Trump himself, but the sort of the ideology of Trumpism. Exactly. And uh, therefore, some of the uh, implications of the questions you've been asking me um, are not wishful thinking, but um, do actually you know, crystallize in practice that people understand the value of public service, that um, the government isn't just incompetent, it's also essential, um, that science... Um, is an objective thing, at least in principle. It's not some deep state plot. Um, uh, and that we are all in this together. That that would be the best case scenario, um, at least insofar as the United States is concerned. Um, the worst case would be that these opinion poll numbers we've seen 
for Trump's handling of the coronavirus, which I think must be the least deserved approval ratings <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> um, yeah. That they are not a flash in the pan. They're not some sort of short-term response to this inverted commas earned media Trump's been getting in the last ten days, but that they are in fact a measure of public gullibility, um, and that Trump therefore goes on to um, not only win re-election in November, um, but also to say um, uh, once this this phase of the virus is over, and let's say we've got four, six, eight thousand American dead, God forbid, but that would seem a realistic number, um, that therefore, you know, compared to the 1.5 million who could have died um, on, the, on the worst predictions of, of what this pandemic could do, that it was therefore basically a liberal hoax and that we've all been conned and thank God you've got me as a president. Um, and that, that would not just be bad news for America and not just a bad reflection on America, but it would be terrible news for the world. Um, uh, and within those two scenarios, there are a host of others, but that's how radically uncertain life is at the moment. I couldn't put my money on either. I just don't know. And finally, uh, we're all in lockdown. Even you are stuck in Washington, D.C. Uh, one book that everyone should be reading to make sense of, of what we're experiencing right now or to give people perspective. I have just downloaded and begun to read um, uh, a biography of Marcus Aurelius, the um, perhaps the most um, sympathetic of Roman emperors, who dealt with uh, the greatest plague of his time, a 15-year plague, and who died from it, taxed the Roman aristocracy for the first time, sold off the imperial household effects to raise money, paid for public funerals for any Roman who died or slave, um, and demonstrated an extraordinary leadership by example. Um, it's not particularly relevant to, you know, populism today, but funnily enough, some things recur. Um, and the need for great leadership in a time of war or plague or any kind of public emergency, um, uh, it's called uh, Marcus Aurelius, A Life, and it's by Frank McLinn. And it's the best recommended life of Aurelius. And I, I, I couldn't recommend it enough. It's, I've only sort of got a third of the way through, but it's, it's, it's a really important demonstration effect of what great leadership can do in a crisis. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening. Keenon isn't just a podcast, it's also a book. 
our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's, Conversations in Defense of the Future, it's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, please buy Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's. It's the essential analog complement to this digital show.